Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I chat to Sunny Bangia. Sunny is the Portfolio Manager of the Antipodes Asia Fund. In this conversation, we talk about the key differences between investing in China or Asia and that of Western or developed markets. Then Sunny dives into the five themes or sectors or clusters that he considers to be the most promising going forward. Within these sectors, Sunny identifies some really interesting companies to put on your watch list. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Sonny, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. I thought we'd start off with uh, your your story, your backstory, how you came to be a portfolio manager. We've had Jacob Mitchell on the show before, who um, you know, founder of Antipodes, and he's talked about the cluster-based research and methodology that goes into finding opportunities throughout the, the global side of the business. But um, we're principally talking about um, Asian equities today. Before we get to that, though, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, if I'm not mistaken, your, your career started at Goldman Sachs. But maybe if we just start one step before that, which is why did you want to move into finance and investing? If we, if we go um, back to when um, I was sort of going through school, high school and um, university, um, I always thought the path for me was to go into engineering. Uh, and that was largely because my family are a group of engineers. Um, I even married into a family of engineers. <laughs> so I'm definitely the uh, black sheep of the family. And um, uh, so w- what happened was... Um, you know, I kind of liked the analytical aspects of uh, engineering, um, but I always had this keen interest for economics, which started with uh, largely with my grandfather, who kind of introduced me to some of the economic um, uh, journals at the time, and just you know started my interest in in the world outside of just engineering and into just generally into the world and into financial markets. It, it, but it still, you know, I still remain on that engineering path, and and it wasn't until sort of the halfway point of my university degree where, I kind of, just got more and more fascinated by markets, and uh, it, it 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 was because I was just investing on the side, reading a lot of investing books. Uh, I was just captivated by how um share prices moved up up and down and how the outcomes of companies and countries could could shape overall markets and so i pivoted uh halfway through my degree much to my parents disappointment who wanted to see another engineer in the family um and and sort of went down that path of finance and uh and uh that sort of uh that's you know opened up my journey and um i haven't looked back since Mm. it's um Getting into Goldman Sachs um, is typically pretty competitive. Did you find it hard to to get to break into the industry? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I didn't know at the time which path to exactly take. I was was really interested in the stock market. Um, 
and it was where where the passion definitely lied. And um, the Goldman Sachs offered a graduate program, um, which you know, which is a competitive program, um, which I was successful to participate in. It it, it allowed it got me into um, on the domestic broking side um, in, right. in Australia, and that's sort of where it started. Um, just watching um, brokers and advisors in the domestic market, and, and at that time there was a we were in the you know halfway or you know mid innings of the commodities bull market but what was really fascinating to me but was that the commodities bull market was really be driven was being driven by the the emergence of asia and more particularly the emergence of china mm. so where my interest really lied was what, what was happening in those countries in those markets um that was far more interesting to me and um, an opportunity came uh, to uh, work at Platinum Asset Management in their Asian equity um, team, uh, which I just thought was the you know the best of what I wanted to do in terms of global markets focus and in and, and in the equity space. Mm. And so you effectively moved into like buy side research. Was that what you were doing there? I, I started off working on uh, the trading desk, um, the dealing desk at uh, Asia, primarily focused on all Asian uh, equities, worked very closely with the portfolio manager of the international fund and the portfolio managers uh, of the Asia fund, um, and really got a great step into uh, how to kind of think about companies, what what made them tick, uh, how the region was evolving, um, and, and at the time, you know, China was in this real big emergence, um, very different to where it is today. Uh, but the region was really emerging as this sort of new economic driver for the world. So it was a, a function of learning the very big, vibrant markets of Asia, but also um, getting an opportunity to focus on company-specific research. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess around that kind of late 2000s, um, you know, 2010, that period would, would have been a pretty fascinating time to be exposed to China. Um, I guess the the next part of your career, if I may, was uh, you, you had a stint at uh, Westpac, I believe, uh, in Singapore. So is that kind of like driving you into Asia? Was there any other reason that you went there? That's right. There was an opportunity um, to get uh, um, to be able to manage some capital and to manage mm-hmm. some risk. Um, what I what I have received at Platinum was a great training ground in terms of understanding markets, understanding companies, doing fundamental work, fundamental research. Um, an opportunity came up Westpac as they were expanding their Asian business uh, to get to manage the capital and understand the whole concept of portfolio management, uh, risk management. Um, and uh, also that was a role that was going to be in Singapore. So it also gave me an opportunity to be in the region um, at, at a very interesting time of, of the region's mm. development. So I'd spent um, about three and a half years in West, at Westpac and I spent about two to two and a half years of the three and a half in Singapore. Yeah, right. And how does um, just, I imagine you're investing everywhere, not just necessarily focused on Singapore. How does the Singaporean market and regime chat, um compared to, say, Australia or the US? Because I, uh, I don't know any... I, I think I know one uh, manager that's based out of Singapore, but not many. 
Singapore is just an incredibly mass, you know, ma- massively open economy, and their um, their ability to attract capital and compete against the region is fierce. So, so yeah, right. you know, development of financial markets is very sophisticated, um, and, and particularly because there's a huge opportunity in China in terms of um, you know being the gateway into China. And Singapore, for a period, was seen as a bit of a gateway into China. That's that's kind of uh, diminished a little bit with the emergence um, of Hong Kong, Hong Kong Exchange, Shanghai Stock Connect. Um, but, um, you know, Singapore is a, is a very favorable, you know, place for business, um, particularly for those in financial markets. And, and my role in was, you know, Westpac's decision was that Singapore would be a, would be the Asia hub for, for Westpac, um, in those initial, in that initial period. And, and that was the reason why, um, we went up there. It was fine, primarily to house a lot of Westpac's, um, front office staff, um, as they were embarking on their Asia expansion. Hmm. My understanding is you went back to Platinum for about two years after you're at Westpac, but then um, ultimately ended up at Antipodes uh, around about 2015. Um, when when Antipodes launched, did it have an Asian strategy? We did. Um, the the current uh, Antipodes Asia Fund uh, has been um, running for since since our inception mm-hmm. um and, and was also even running prior to our inception so we we kind of took over the product and the fund um so it's had a, it's got a you know long in, long history of um investing in in the region mm. so can you maybe that's where we can um just segue into what you're doing today which is uh, portfolio manager of the antipodes asia fund can you can you talk about i guess how that sits in the overarching investment philosophy at antipodes um, like I said, we had Jacob on the show before who talked about, you know, the various, I guess, drivers of growth. Um, but this is going to be a tilt towards, you know, uh, Asian equities. So can you describe how the Asian equities component fits into the Antipodes overarching strategy? So the way we manage the Antipodes Asia Fund is with the focus of the overall Antipodes um, investment philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, we are um, focused on a margin of safety um, in each one of our businesses. We, we we're looking to buy high quality companies that that are, are on attractive valuations. We combine the margin of safety framework with an, another framework, what we call business resilience, uh, which is to, to is to ensure that. Each and every one of our investment ideas have multiple ways they can unlock value, multiple ways they can win. Um, you know, others may commonly call them in you know, a business moat, but we we want to define what that moat is. You know, what are the aspects of this business that's unique to this company, and how does it have multiple ways to win? And and that is you know something that's very embedded in our um, investment approach. Um, our investment research in practice, uh, and it's how we can, you know, go out and find these great companies in the world for not only the Antipodes Asia Fund, but all our all our strategies. And then finally, how how do these portfolios get constructed? It, you know, it's what we call these alpha clusters, these diversified alpha clusters. Well, ultimately, we're looking to buy these great companies that have multiple ways to win with a margin of safety, but 
what is the correlation of these businesses with one another? Are the revenues correlated? If they are, well, how much so? And how much exposure are we comfortable with given um, there are risks that we can forecast and there are risks that we cannot forecast? Mm. And so we limit the alpha clusters in the Antipodes Asia Fund to to approximately 20-25% to ensure the portfolio is not overly exposed to one particular theme. And then the great thing about the fund is to create these diversified alpha clusters. And, and at the moment, we feel we've got some really interesting and really unique alpha opportunities in the Asia region, which is allowing us to create um, these diversified alpha clusters, of, of, of which we have about five at the moment. Yeah, I was going to so so about 25 to 20, uh, 20 to 25% is kind of the, the limit there in terms of where you're, you're structuring those, those buckets. Um, I saw a a video of you recently where you described the five buckets. We've got some examples that we'll discuss at the end of the show in terms of actual positions. But um, can you talk to, I guess, just give us the high-level overview of kind of where China or Asia generally is in terms of Asian equities, where, where they were maybe when you started your career and where they are now, and then we can talk about kind of what you see as the future being those five buckets. So that's a lot to take in one question, Sonny. But basically you know, how the Asian market has evolved, why it's attractive. Um, and then we'll break that down into those those different, I guess, alpha clusters. Absolutely. So in my in my professional investing career, um, you know, when I, when I first started out, there was a term at Goldman Sachs, particularly coined by Goldman Sachs economist, Jim O'Neill, um, um, with the concept of the emergence of emerging markets called BRICS, the, the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and uh, South Africa. And over my professional investing career, um, China's economy has grown six to seven fold um, from when, from when, um, from all those years ago. And so China in, its, in itself has created an economy that is as large as Brazil, India, China, South Africa, and a few more combined. So the emergence of China has been um, just incredibly spectacular, um, particularly the way the nation has moved hundreds of millions of people out of poverty uh, and has created these enormous consuming classes uh, within the within the population, which, you know, are potentially in the next wave um, in terms of the consumption buying. So you, if you think about China's consumption waves, you've had the the first wave, which was to move uh, people out of um, poverty into a emerging household class. Um, then we went from emerging household into middle income household. And we are now just on the cusp of um, the premium consumers of China, which is effectively saying that there's a group of consumers that are growing in China that have the buying power or the consuming power of a developed market economy. Uh, This is about 80 million people. So the population of Germany Hmm. over the next decade will become 300 million people, which will morph to the population, nearly the population of the United States. And it is that premium consuming class, which is just one of the one of the most outstanding investment opportunities uh, that is being presented today um, for for both emerging market and global investors. Mm. How about like so? You talked about when you're at um, Goldman back back in your, the early days of your career, how it was kind of that 
that infrastructure, like I guess the the iron ore demand and the, the commodities boom was driven by that massive demand for infrastructure. And now we've got consumption. Um, like are you more, are you, would you say you're more excited by the opportunities today than you would have been back then? Yeah, it's an f- interesting question. I, I think, you know, what, what's been really interesting um, is just um, the way these evolution has happened of the global economy of, of emerging markets. It's, it's been a very exciting journey over the last 15 years. But a part of that journey has been, has been achieved because of the very powerful technology, technological drivers that are in, in place today. So, for example, the impact of Moore's law, um, doubling of computing power every couple of years, has been a, a very big boom for emerging markets, particularly those countries that have been able to adapt it into their economies. And, and so we, we still feel the trajectory remains as exciting today as it did 15 years ago. It's a different opportunity set today. Um, there is the premium consumer class that has emerged in China. There's a middle class consumer in the rest of Asia, but also the fact that we are in we're in this environment where there are some really interesting, um, predictable trends that are in force that will be with us over the coming decade. And one of the other big important trends in Asia will be the decarbonization mm. of Asia, and particularly the decarbonization of China. If you, if you look back over the past decade, we've almost seen a fairly predictable fall in solar um, wafer costs uh, of about 10 to 15% per annum over a 10-year period. And, and so, you're, you know, you're at a point where in China today, the cost of a new-build solar plant is below that of, of coal. All right. So the investment phase that China will go in in the coming years won't be, as, as you alluded to, as, as infrastructure heavy, or the infrastructure will change. The spend on infrastructure will change. It will, it will morph towards um, decarbonization of the, of, the, of the electricity grid, mm. the build-out of renewable energy. And again, we're probably in, in the first innings of this, of this opportunity set um, and that's something that we think is not just China specific, will be will be happening across the Asia region, but we, we feel China will lead the way largely because the government um, is also very focused, and in a way, twenty twenty has put you know reminded the capital markets that these opportunities are um, you know, very long duration in nature, but also um, have become, the unit economics have become very favorable. So we can make money in this opportunity that it, that is presenting, uh, presenting um, that is presenting to us over the next decade. How, just as a kind of a broad strokes question on this, how, I guess, does the opportunity compare to say more developed markets like North America, um, Europe, et cetera, um, and what I mean specifically is kind of like how, how does the opportunity set differ? You know, uh, we talk about decarbonization in Asian equities but or Asian markets, but we also see that 
um, in other parts of the world? Um, or is there other buckets that are kind of unique to the Asian market that you see? Because I know you've got those kind of five clusters. Um, maybe this is an opportunity to step into those um, to draw the kind of parallels. Like I know we've got FANG stocks in the US, right? And we've got um, some big tech stocks in, in China and elsewhere. Um, so maybe maybe that's the way to take this point. Yeah, um, I was watching an interview by the Shopify CEO um, a few months back and um, one of the comments made in the interview was that Shopify CEO and management team will travel to the West Coast of the US to observe some of the emerging trends in e-commerce. Um, and, you know, in that recent interview, the, the management team alluded to that was you know, outdated by four to five years now, that actually some of the biggest emerging trends in e-commerce are uh, happening in China, on the east coast of China, with some of the leading Chinese e-commerce companies. And and so what what's really interesting to us as global investors is that we really have this perspective on watching east versus west. There are there are some things that the east is ahead of and there are some things that the west is ahead of. So in e-commerce, um, you know, China potentially leads the world in terms of innovation, in terms of different shopping experiences. Um, even when you think about e-commerce, it's quite a functional task. Um, but the Chinese e-commerce companies have actually made um, e-commerce fun, hmm. um, whether it be Meituan or, or Pingdodo. And so that's that's a that's an innovation in itself, which we think is leading in in asia it's leading in china other asian other asian uh companies um are watching that uh so c limited uh, another one of our asia funds holding in southeast asia is is taking those learnings and applying it to the southeast asian um uh, uh, e-commerce markets at the same time you know we think western markets uh, Western companies are ahead in other aspects of digital advertising. Facebook and Google have led the way in terms of the evolution of the digital ad market in the US. Um, and we think some of those trends are in their early stages in, in Asia, uh, with particularly a company like Tencent, which we which we think is, um, you know, in the early, early innings of its monetization opportunity. Um, so, you know, we're much more interested in, in, in watching the differences between the two markets, um, and and those calls, uh, you know, it allows us to sort of watch and learn the different opportunity sets better. Some some are ahead in some areas, some are ahead in other areas. When it comes to decarbonisation, um, I, I think you know China is um, definitely you know an interesting country to watch. Um, because it is still a very fast-growing power market. So to, to put into context, the Chinese power demand grows each year to the same size of the United Kingdom and the Netherlands. So there's a real big opportunity to, to meet the incremental power demand now on much more favorable unit economics with solar renewable energy build out. Mm. So there are some trends that are in favor of emerging markets because of growth. Um, but at the same time, um, Western companies and Western um, economies are in um, another phase of their development, which is in terms of productivity improvements. So one of our big portfolio holdings, Siemens, um, is, is a company that's, that is in the forefront of not just the infrastructure 
revolution, but also some of their um, their um, software automation technologies that sit within Siemens are some of the interesting things happening within Western companies in terms of improving the productivity uh, for a lot of Western economies. So do you say is Siemens in the Asian equities fund? Siemens is in our in our global fund. Yeah, right. Because um, I know you have the remit to to buy companies outside of Asian equities that have exposure to the markets, right? We do. Um, where we feel a particular company might have a substantial amount of revenue exposure coming from the Asia region, yeah. and we can find multiple ways to win, a margin of safety, it fits into our alpha clusters, we, we, we will consider such, a, such an opportunity. One of the things, Sonny, that I guess some investors butt their heads up against is the idea that you know Asian equities are risky because we kind of look at it from a Western lens, which is um, you know corporate governance is really really important. Um, it's important to speak or hear from management and to understand the regulatory regime. Um, and I, I guess that's one of the reasons why a lot of Australian investors, in particular, target locally listed companies to get some exposure to Asia. How do how do you, how do you I guess contend with that? Um, and you know, I guess what's the you know how do you how do you manage that as a portfolio manager if you have to manage that at all? Like, is that just a common misconception, or is there actually some substance behind that? Sure, I, I think it's really interesting to observe um, what are the objectives of each and every company in terms of what they're looking to achieve. Um, it could be just in terms of just financial outcomes, shareholder returns, but also as a business and whether that's aligned to the outcomes also of the country. Many of our um, in- investments in Asia are exposed to opportunity sets that are more domestic in nature. And if you if you look at the way the world is evolving, it, it is becoming um, more insular. You know, the Chinese mm-hmm. economy is increasingly moving to more of a domestic-focused economy, as you would expect it to do in the current state of its evolution, as it becomes more of a consuming-focused um, nation. Um, India is moving towards that kind of path. Southeast Asia, there are more domestic opportunities in those markets, and um, you know, the, the West is kind of seen as one big group as well. It's, um, it's incredibly important to ensure that the businesses that we own in Asia, that we have management teams that are focused, aligned with us as shareholders. I don't think that's a unique thing about Asia. I think that's important in any aspect of investing. You want, them, you want to understand what are the management incentives. Um, and, and, and that's what we also do in Asia it's in terms of ensuring that's, that's the case. We look for founder-driven businesses as well. One of the great thing about, you know, let's just say focus on China is there's been a huge emergence of a new group of companies over the past decade that are looking to solve big problems. Um, you know, if we think about e-commerce, it was first sort of solving the e-commerce opportunity set. 
Um, but today it's looking at um, modernizing China's grocery market, you know, modernizing the wet markets. Um, Meituan, which is the largest food delivery company in China, is now also tackling um, the modernization of the supply chain of, um, of, of agriculture. And there's an enormous amount of wastage, middlemen um, from getting produce from farm to consumer, which a modern a modern uh, supply chain will collapse, create enormous efficiencies through the chain, um, and that will accrue obviously to to the to the shareholders of these companies, uh, but also to the economy as through productivity enhancements. Uh, and we're looking for these you know, management-focused, founder-led businesses that have that that focus, that are tackling these great big opportunities in Asia. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, um, it, it's hard to play them directly through um, global markets. So once upon a time, uh, uh, Nike was a way to play the Chinese consumer. But as we have seen with, with the recent few months in terms of uh, Nike's outspoken stance towards China, um, it is potentially leading towards a surge in domestic brands. But I think that surge was inevitable anyway, because if you look at the United States and you look at domestic brands in the United States, they overwhelmingly dominate the market share. So 70% of, of, of brands in the United States are American. And in China, 70% of brands are foreign. So there was always a natural shift towards uh, domestic brands. and. For that, we believe you do need to be thinking about companies that are Asian, that are listed in Asia, that have 100% of their revenues coming from those geographies, because they, you know, they they will be they will be the purest ways to play that exposure versus playing it through some large conglomerate, um, or as we've seen with A2 Milk in the Aussie market, where it's different. It's not the purest way to play that exposure towards consumption in China. Mm. You mentioned um, Meituan. I think that's how you, well, how you pronounce it, Meituan. Because um, I, I was looking through your top 10 holdings recently and I noticed that that was in there and I was thinking, this is the only company that I haven't heard of. Um, so this is probably sitting, I would guess, in, is that in the social commerce bucket for you or cluster for you? Yes. Yeah. How did you, how did you find that business? You know, in, all of the, in your entire universe, how do you drill down into a company and, and find that opportunity? Yes. Well, one of the great things about the Antipodes um, research framework is um, we look for, you know, we do a lot of industry work. Our our teams that might be broken up in with 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 a geographical f- focus, you know, we all come back as you know students of industries and then companies. And to us, you know, the whole emergence of food delivery started with our framework in the US as we saw the emergence of Uber, Uber Eats um, and, and those kind of businesses. And um, again, we, you know, it, it also led us to go east and think about these opportunity sets in, in Asia. Mm-hmm. What we found um, was that the underlying unit economics of, a, um, of food delivery um, were quite interesting in developed markets, but but for a function of you know easy capital markets, easy access to capital, there was just a brutal competition occurring between the Western players. Um, probably still is happening today, maybe a bit lesser. The competitive dynamics have improved, 
But when you go to China, you would observe that uh, the market was actually um, an oligopoly between Meituan uh, and Elama. Elama is owned by Alibaba. In um, a market also where food delivery um, as a category had just emerged, it, it, it really, literally started off in 2015. Um, what also really attracted us to the food delivery market in China um, through our observation of looking at food delivery companies across the world was that the Chinese restaurant market was very fragmented versus, say, the U.S. restaurant market, which is consolidated amongst these large restaurant chains. So the chained restaurant market in China is maybe 5 to 10%, leaving a whole host of unchained restaurants. And, and that's great dynamic for food delivery companies in, in allowing them to have good, good pricing power. Um, and, and, it, and it led us to sort of do more work on Meituan, a company that's operating in a good industry structure with um, relatively uh, healthy competitive dynamics. Um, the monetization of food delivery companies was lower than Western peers. So there's an under monetization angle in a category that is just emerging as a huge growth phase, which is, you know, eat, eat out of restaurant uh, or, or eat, you know, eating, eating, eating at home. Um, finally, Meituan, from our point of view, had just done a great job in cementing itself as the number one player in the market. So they they were at the time of investment about fifty five to fifty five to 60% market share. And today we're looking closer to 65 to 70%. So there's just further pushed hmm. on their lead in terms of food delivery. And, and we can think about food delivery as one category of of on-demand logistics. And, you know, we're also seeing that Meituan, which is doing about 35 million orders a day of food delivery, is also moving into new categories such as just on-demand on on-demand e-commerce, on-demand commerce, delivering uh, flowers, delivering um, other kind of goods within a certain radius. Um, and so that's, a, we think, a long growth opportunity for those type of businesses, particularly in China, where the market competitive dynamic is strong. And then secondly, Meituan has now tackling another big opportunity in the modernization of China's grocery markets. Grocery penetration in e-commerce is one of the lowest in China at about 5 to 7% versus other categories such as electronics, which is, you know, north of 40%. And it's a big, it's a big opportunity to tackle. So the, the grocery and, and um, pack FMCG market is about $2 trillion US dollars in size. And again, we see Meituan as a leader in terms of modernizing that, providing an opportunity to bring um, goods to consumers at a very attractive, attractive price in the lower tier cities of China. How do you how do you think about valuation of a company like Meituan? Um, you know, are you doing discounted cash flow analysis? Are you looking at comparables? How do you think about that um, when it comes to that ultimate decision for the portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. Look, our value, you know, valuation um, we're very focused on on valuation in all our companies. Whether we have a sufficient margin of safety. Versus a margin of error, um, you know, in a, in, a, in any of our in, in our analysis, we you know we are we are attempting to look 
uh, three years out, three to five years out. And, and there is obviously, a, it could be an error in terms of uh, forecasting. But, but you know, in an in a opportunity set such as uh, e-commerce, China's e-commerce or food delivery, modernization of the wet markets, we are looking at what is the opportunity in a few years of these segments to move online? Uh, what kind of margin structure will these companies earn? Mm. And what kind of cash flows can they produce, um, reasonable cash flows that they can produce, and you know, what should those cash flows be worth today to us as a shareholder? And so in that approach for Meituan specifically, it is looking at a at a, at, the, at the at a at a DCF of those cash flows, but also looking at what a what a reasonable margin will look like in three years time, four years time, and what kind of multiple we want to be putting on that kind of profit, uh, operating profit, and whether that looks attractive to us today, in terms of you know waiting for that opportunity to unfold o- over the coming years. Um, we we when we look at um, other businesses, you know. It, it it might be it might be looking at a mid cycle earnings power, um, mm-hmm. particularly in a more cyclical opportunity, versus which is what we versus what we're describing today is more of a structural opportunity, which is more like looking at what the what the what the structural opportunity is, what the addressable market is for this. Um, so it's a combination, and we use we we are flexible, but we are incredibly focused on making sure we have a significant significant margin of safety. And, and as a result, you know, on Meituan, for example, we think um, that particular business, um, looking a few years out, could be sub, you know, ten times PE. Um, but but also, we've got to be comfortable that they have the ability to execute on that mm. on that opportunity too. Mm. And hence, and hence the discount that's being presented today. So we talked about so far. We've talked about social commerce, um, and you mentioned you just touched on there, kind of the cyclical element that alpha cluster, which is more around, if I'm not mistaken, kind of reopening trade. So, you know, post COVID, um, getting people to buy uh, consumption, et cetera. And then I guess, I mean, these are all kind of, they're intertwined as well. We have defensive businesses, which I've, I've heard you speak of before, um, connective and compute and decarbonization. So those are the five. Does a company like Taiwan Semiconductors, does that, fall into connective and compute for you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Can you describe the opportunity set there? Because I, from the the latest monthly that I'm reading um, from May 2021, um, my understanding was that Taiwan Semi was the, the largest position that you held? That That's right. That's yeah. right. So I, I'm – because I know this is a pretty topical thing at the moment because there's this um, – you know, we've heard in the media that there's this global shortage of – of semiconductors around the world and there's a lot of people talking about it, a lot of analysts talking about this um, and almost always Taiwan Semiconductor gets brought up. So can you explain the business and, and kind of where it fits in that value chain? Absolutely. Um, what is interesting as we've been discussing is been this is the, the is just the evolution of uh, Moore's Law and what kind of uh, amazing productivity enhancement it is given to to the human race and um, we, you know we still are very excited in the next phase of, of where this is going um, which is down the path of high performance compute 
And uh, what I mean by that is the way we are going to use data in more aspects of our businesses and that more and more companies in, around the world are going to be technology-led businesses. In China, what is really interesting is that a lot of these Chinese, what we call tech companies, which you know we just see them as consumer businesses, they've just done a great job in using technology in monetizing the opportunity in front of them, mm. uh, particularly the e-commerce companies. They are perhaps one of the most advanced in using artificial intelligence, big data, in understanding the consumer and then targeting the consumer to give them the best shopping experience possible. And we just think that's going to pr proliferate into more and more industries across the world. And it's going to be facilitated by the manufacturing of leading edge, high performance computing chips, which at the moment, uh, at the leading edge, is only done by two companies in the world, one being Taiwan Semiconductor and the second one being Samsung Electronics. And just to give you some context, you know, 10, 10, 12 years ago, to build the leading edge semiconductor manufacturing plant would be approximately a $2 billion US dollar venture. Today, that's over $20 billion US dollars. It has become increasingly hard and complex to build the world's leading edge semiconductor chips. And um, TSMC remains at the forefront of this um, rev you know, revolution with working with leading companies like Apple, but also with companies like Amazon uh, in, in the, in, as they search to build their own machine learning chips to, to help their you know, amazing, uh, you know, to, to, to continue to push forward their lead in, in, um, in the cloud computing, in, in, in the cloud computing um, opportunity that they have in front of them. But across the sp spectrum, when you think about all these companies that are looking to build um, AI chips, machine learning chips, um, TSMC is in the forefront of all of that. And as we move into the next node, as we go, as we, as we go into the um, five and three nanometer, it, it is possible that TSMC could be a pure monopoly at, at those very, very leading edge chips. So it's, it's, in, a, it's in a great position uh, as we move into this world. Um, and so we just see it as a company that's got a, a significant um, ability to win through multiple angles. It's got enormously high business resilience. And um, and it's still presenting itself with a great margin of safety, which feel that investors aren't looking three years out, thinking about what what kind of market dominance TSMC can be in. Um, still looking over their shoulder, thinking Intel might make a comeback. Uh, but I think some of these things are are quite structural in nature. So mm -hmm. um, we, we feel just TSMC is in a in a great spot. Mm. It's one of those companies that. Um it's a, it's kind of no matter which way you look at the um, the value chain of semiconductors, their name always gets brought up, and to think that they're moving into you know, three nanometer chips is quite unbelievable when you think about that. Um, and also the cost. I think um, I was listening to a podcast recently which discussed some of the announcements from the last quarter um, from US and, and global technology companies that suggested that at least $200 billion was being invested into new plants to try and fill demand over the next 10 years, um, which is a huge amount of money. 
Um, and to think, you know, the Taiwan is semiconductor is still at the forefront of that um, and will most likely continue to be for some time is quite interesting. Um, how about, do you, because do I think we as analysts, we can often get a bit, fall into the trap of telling a story of a company and, and not really um, understanding or not inverting the question to get to a I guess the true understanding of the business. So how about if we just for listeners sake, if we talk about, are there any risks that you perceive um, to be evident with TSMC or um, how do you think about the the risk of, of the position for your portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, semiconductor manufacturing, uh, the capital equipment side of, side of things is um, it is a high stakes game. Uh, a lot of capital investment is required that that goes into this um, to to stay ahead of your competition and and um, you know Intel has found out through the hard way that this this that this is is, is how tricky and how difficult this uh, is uh, and, and so you can't ever rule out that that companies um, you know such as Intel or, or or even Samsung are able to push ahead to get to get ahead on on a technology front. Um, through through innovation and through aggressive capital spending, um, you know t- TSMC's position has only arose uh, arisen in the last five six years to be so dominant. Intel has been a very very strong competitor over a much longer time period. Mm. Se- secondly, the 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 reality is that that the at the at the real core of the China U.S. rivalry. Is a technology rivalry. Mm. Um, if you look at um, the way the U.S. administration under Trump, probably will continue under Biden, um, were uh, hostile towards Huawei, um, was a very interesting way. It was very interesting to us because it it did highlight that the focus is to limit the other nation's ability to move ahead mm. in technology. And, and so Huawei was at a stage where they were looking to build out China's 5G network. Um, and, and we still feel China will build out its 5G network, but it's it's definitely been delayed by 18 months um, by the actions taken by the US administration. So it's a technology war rather than just a you know, trade war. And a part of that will be semiconductors. Um, Taiwan and South Korea um, sit very close uh, to the Chinese border (laughs) and Samsung and and TSMC are perhaps one of the two most important companies to ensure that this technology um, productivity enhancement continues. Um, So these companies are required by both China and the United States and so, so geopolitics is going to be an in increasingly bigger risk to the investment cases of, of these companies. Um, at the moment, what we see is um, um, the U.S. government is going to encourage South Korean and Taiwanese companies to invest in the U.S., but increasingly the European um, eco- bloc may also ask TSMC to build fabs in the European Union to, to secure, you know, to ensure there is... Um, security of chips and production and manufacturing cap- capacity. So we need to be aware of these risks. We need to really watch them closely. You need to be careful in terms of how they evolve. Um, as far as it stands today, we feel TSMC is, you know, the United States really wants TSMC. 
Um, so it's a positive for TSMC. They're getting up the opportunity to build capacity in the US um, with favorable terms. Because the United States is really encouraging encouraging that. Um, but it's something we've got to watch very carefully. It, it can pose risks to not just TSMC, but just to the general semiconductor complex if things were to get things were to take a nasty turn. Mm. Um, and secondly, just in terms of technology, we've got to watch what's happening in Intel. And we've also got to watch what's happening in China. Now, we feel at the moment the Chinese equivalent companies are about five to 10 years behind. Um, but increasingly, China is going to spend a lot of money to bring these companies up the curve. So we need to also watch that risk because it will bring in competition that has, you know, that that isn't present today. Right now, it's a very, very strong oligopolistic turning into a monopolistic market. So we've got to watch those competitive dynamics over the years to come. There is one final um, company, which is in that alpha cluster um, of decarbonization, which um, I know is a pretty interesting one. You did mention it earlier on. You did mention that the cost of solars, uh, solar panels and, and the wafers coming down. Um, so um, Longy Green Energy, um, I believe is the company. And... Um, Maybe we can. Maybe you can just tell us about the opportunity set there. You kind of patted it out a bit earlier on. Um, what the company does, how it does it, and maybe just some key risks. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting to us is that um, that the solar and and maybe we can focus on what's happening in Asia because decarbonization. Uh, arguably is a global theme. It's mm. not just an Asian theme. It's sure. also there's interesting opportunities in Europe and the US, which our global funds are exposed to. In China, um, we feel um, the renewable sector is moving um, from a operating cost model to a capital cost model. And when you start to think about that it can transform a whole industry where incremental capacity added is at low marginal cost so we can go into enormous build-out phase. And given where we are now in terms of the solar industry in China, we're at the cusps of a potential uh, change in the thinking of that, and 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 if you if you think about where that's happened in other industries potentially around the world, maybe we can think about uh, the manufacturing supply chains in China, where incremental capital costs, incremental incremental costs were very low in terms of adding capital. The the evolution of the global shipping industry as we added a lot more capacity and facil- facilitated a huge wave of investment. Um, we we feel that. P- possible now in the renewable industry in China. So, you know, we feel that translates to a potentially very large build-out of solar capacity over the coming decade. And so we could be staring ourselves in, you know, know, with a um, seven-fold increase in solar build-out, moving from about 200 gigawatts to about 1,100 gigawatts of solar capacity um, over the coming decade in China. And so it is on the precipice of a big move. Mm. It is There is at the moment, there's still de- debate in, in China, 
are we going to build this year? We're going to build next year. And so there is volatility. Um, and, and, this, and the stocks in the short term are responding to the volatility, worried about potentially project delays, worried about, um, you know, projects being accelerated. And it's, mm. it's moving like that quarter to quarter. But if you just look a few years out, which, you know, which is what we really focus on um, and really think about the way the operating costs are changing to, to, to the model is changing from operating costs to capital costs. We just think it's a great, outstanding opportunity. And uh, Longi, Longi Green Energy is the uh, largest uh, producer, ma- manufacturer of solar wafers and modules in China with about 60% market share. It's one of the largest. It is the largest in China and is, uh, is has the ability to not only supply that into the Chinese market, but also into other Asian markets as they also over the next couple of years move into a much more bigger focus on um decarbonization hmm. okay um i guess that's um three really those are three really interesting ideas and totally different industries but all kind of um falling neatly into those those five alpha clusters sunny I'm, I'm conscious of time um so the best place if people want to learn more about the, the antipodes asia fund that you run um the best place would be to head to antipodepartners.com is is that right that's right. Um, we have a lot of information on our on our website. Uh, we have uh, uh, you know more detailed business breakdowns of some of the companies we have discussed in our monthlies, quarterlies, uh, but also with a lot of other content um, that we, that we share on our website. Yeah, a lot of write ups and, and videos as well. So um, I'll be sure to include those in the show notes. One final question, Sunny, which I ask all of my guests who are new to the show, which is. Uh, more of a, I guess, a philosophical inward-looking one, which is just if you could go back in time and tell your younger self um, something about money, finance, or investing, what would be the thing that you tell your younger self? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, the you know the um, evolution of my own investing approach has just been through a series of, of accumulated learnings, learnings from um, people, the my my colleagues, uh, just just all the experiences I've been able to have and sh- and, and and learn from, um, and and I in a way I, I I don't know what I would have done differently, what I would have s- studied studied differently. I think um, you know the the, um, the for me this is just a learning exercise. Investing is just at the core. It's just about learning. It's about learning mm-hmm. about different things. Um, and thinking about how they may impact the world and um, whether that's being priced in or not. And um, I just feel, um, you know, I'm really glad the evolution that I've, that I've gone through. It's, it's really shaped me as the investor I, I am today. Um, but I feel, you know, I've, I, write a, I write a small little journal. Uh, which I've started doing in the last sort of five, six years. That's been incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. That's probably something I wish I maybe feel that, you know, should have done a bit earlier because it, you really, it's really great to put your thoughts on paper, why you've made certain decisions, what was the rationale, and then, to go, and then to go back in time and look at the reasons that you made those decisions and it, it sort of helps you think about whether those things were done in haste or whether they were done with um, well-thought-out um, with a well-thought-out um, process. Mm, that's great that's great advice i love the idea of using a journal um and just writing down it doesn't have to be a physical journal just writing down your your thoughts at the time sunny thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast today that was great thank you very much for the opportunity to have a chat. Mm.